Yes, it is another Friday. Before we kick off the weekend officially, got another edition of the Speaking For Him podcast for you. I'm Adam McNutt, alongside the host of the program, Mr. Andrew Gomison. Hello, this is Andrew Gomison, and I am privileged once again uh, to welcome in a semi-regular guest, uh, Naomi Van Harn, for yet another book club discussion. We're on our third of four books, and today we will be discussing uh, Alistair Begg's book, uh, Made for his pleasure, 10 Benchmarks of a Vital Faith. And that is a pretty large title, but there's a lot to cover. And it it will be interesting to see how this discussion goes. I'm looking forward to it. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you again for having me. And as I was kind of talking a little bit off mic before we recorded, these book club discussion podcasts are an interesting challenge, which I enjoy. And the challenge is to share enough for you to make this an informative podcast, but not to share so much that you yourself don't go out and get the book for yourself and read it. The cool thing, um, just to start out, about this book is it doesn't take much to read it. I think I read it in like three or four days, Mm -hmm. and it was only took about a half an hour a day or so. So it's not a long read, um, and it's very simply written. So as we go through and talk about some of this stuff, I hope that it will encourage you to grab a book from your local retailer or perhaps get the ebook as I did um, because I realized that I was in a time crunch to get it read, and it wasn't coming in in the library soon enough. So I was able to jump on Amazon and get it um, downloaded directly to my computer and was able to read it while I was on vacation in Texas. So it's a very good read. Very cool. And it's very simply written. So I think it would be a blessing. So I'm going to go to Naomi now and ask what her overall impression was of the book and then I will talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get into the specific benchmarks that Pastor Begg talks about. Well, I think if you like his sermons, as I do, you will enjoy this book. Um, Like you said, he covers a lot of ground, but it's easy to understand, and I like that he uses stories um, to illustrate what he's teaching at the moment. So it's an enjoyable uh, lesson, I don't know, and it's an enjoyable book. <laughs> I enjoyed reading it, and like you said, I read it in just a few days. All right. Well, to to start out, again, I just like the simple way that he puts puts it forth, the simple way that he broke it down. And now we're just going to look at uh, some of these specific things that he talks about. Um, the first benchmark that he mentions is spiritual fitness. And he opens the book with a an analogy about, I believe it's the Boston Marathon, Boston or New York, I forget which. But he's talking about a marathon and how you have to train for a marathon. Adam, would you sign up for a marathon um, on Friday and then go run it Saturday morning? Uh, It would, I guess, depend how long it was. If it was like a 1K, absolutely. But a marathon is 26 miles. Oh, then absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would, no. So you don't sign up for a race and then run it the next day having not trained. Uh, I know a lot of, of 
5K racers and some that do longer distances, and they will sign up months before a race. Mm -hmm. And then they will train for that race, and they will have certain goals. Usually the goal is to beat my last time. That's usually the way people do when they go to run a race. And so Alistair Begg is saying, as you put effort into exercise and into your diet and into your schedule and all these things that help with physical fitness, that we need to do the same thing with our spiritual um, with our spiritual fitness and not just put that off. Um, I think it was very applicable because I think sometimes we can get into this idea of we're going to be Sunday Christians. You know, as long as we show up on Sunday, uh, open our Bibles, listen to a good sermon, then we're going to be spiritually fit. Um, but he really um, talks about um, a lot of specific things that um, you need to do in order to be spiritually fit. And he talks about how prayer and worship and Bible reading all work together um, to create a spiritually fit person. And we'll talk more in more detail on this particular aspect when we cover the um, armor of God in some future podcasts this summer. And I'm looking forward to that, to talking about that in more detail. Um, but did you have any thoughts, Naomi? Um, I no noted the verse that he quoted is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So even the little things he's saying, do it for the glory of God. And also one of the things he says is that uh, one of the key reasons for the flabbiness of our spiritual lives in that a generation of Christians is growing up with little awareness of the necessity of dealing with sin. Um, and I think that that is true. We were at a church for a little bit, and the same subject every Sunday was preached, and it was about love, which is a great thing. But if that's the only part of your, you know, it's like only working out one arm. You know, you need to work the whole body and address well, every issue. And one thing that I have become fond of saying or reminding myself and others when I speak is that you can't understand the love of God unless you understand the judgment of God first. Mm -hmm. Because we talk about how much God is loving, but we really cheapen God's love when we don't talk about his wrath. Mm -hmm. The love of God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and to declare us righteous if we trusted him. He didn't, he didn't uh, you know, allow himself to be hung naked on a cross uh, just so that we could say every Sunday God is love and ignore sin. Because God certainly didn't ignore sin. God can't let sin into his heaven. That's why Jesus died. And because he died and because I've trusted in his righteousness, I can go to heaven. But it's, it didn't happen because I ignored my sin. Uh, nor did it happen because the only thing I ever thought about was the love of God. It happened because I was able at one point in my life to look at my life, to realize how far I was from God and realize what it took to get closer to God. So it's definitely an important aspect. Mm -hmm. Okay, the second benchmark that he talks about is prayer. And uh, I think it's very interesting, the story that he relates about the vacation mm -hmm. that his family went on, and they had their reservations um, taken care of, or so they thought, and they got to the place 
where they were going to stay and they were double booked. So there was no room for them and where they were going to stay. And so they had this, their dad had, you know, his dad had work off for two weeks. They had all their luggage. They were ready for a two week vacation and there was nowhere to stay. And so they, um, traveled on a little farther and I forget whether, I think they got a room at a bed and breakfast for one night. And then the next day was Sunday and they, uh, heard about someone that might have an opening and they went to see if they might have lodging available. And the lady was appalled that they would be traveling on a Sunday. And, and she (laughs) said, I don't have room, but if I, even if I did, I can't believe that you'd be looking for one on a Sunday. And it's it's interesting because Alistair relates how uncomfortable that was for his dad, how his dad didn't want to travel on Sunday you know, they had their plans to be situated in their vacation spot on Saturday so that wouldn't happen. And then it just so happened that, that they were able to find an old friend who opened their home for them for the night. And then it was revealed that they were going on a vacation. <laughs> so they said, so they said, you can have our home for your vacation home. Oh, that's very It's cool. yours for two weeks. And so I really appreciated that specific example of an answer to prayer because I know for me, I don't often pray um, specific enough prayers because I want to give God an out. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to be able to say that He answered my prayer without being so specific that you know it would have to be a total miracle for Him to answer that prayer. Mm-hmm. And so I I fall into the trap of praying safe prayers yeah. uh, because I think you can go to to the opposite extreme as well and have this attitude that you can command God to do things. Yeah. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I have a great deal of respect for um, my Pentecostal and charismatic uh, brothers and sisters. However, sometimes when they, when they say, um, Claim you know, it and name it or yeah, name it and claim, cl- it. <laughs> name it and claim it or they say be healed in Jesus name or whatever the case may be. They're kind of it feels like to me anyway that they're kind of negating God's will. Uh, Jesus said that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And, you know, a lot of times we say, well, if God didn't answer the prayer the way I wanted it to be answered, then he didn't answer my prayer. But the fact of the matter is he, he did answer. He answers every single time. His answers are one of three, either yes, no, or wait. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, he always and does. And those are, those are the three answers, but they're always answers. And then he just, I mean, when he talked about having a habit of prayer, too, and he gave the, the reflection of the life of Daniel and how Daniel was such a man of prayer that the people that were against him, they couldn't find anything wrong with him, so they used his prayer life against him because they were so confident that he would be praying every day that they said, let's make a decree that nobody can pray to anybody but the king, and Daniel will surely transgress it, and then we can throw him in the lions. And we all know how that ended, if you've read the story. If you haven't, pick up your Bible and read the book of Daniel. It's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. The Bible is anything but boring. Did you have any thoughts on this particular benchmark um just as a parent i thought it was neat that his dad was humble enough to say all right we have a situation here we don't have a place he wasn't like i got this 
I'm going to take care of it. Um, he led his family in prayer, to, you know, about the situation and how much that taught Alistair, you know, seeing that. Um, whereas if, you know, if his father would have handled it a different way, would he have learned that lesson at that time? So I just thought that was really neat. Yes. And one other thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the next benchmark is when he talked about how prayer, uh, part of prayer is is having God's glory be our end goal. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times when we pray, we want to be delivered out of a bad situation, out of a trial. And we don't really think about the fact that maybe God is using the trial for a specific purpose in our life. Daniel was committed to prayer even if he would have died in the lion's den. He didn't go into the lion's den knowing that God was going to deliver him. He knew he could. And it reminds me also of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That, you know, they said, we will not bow down before your statue, Nebuchadnezzar. And God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't serve your idol. And that's kind of the way we need to live our lives as Christians is even if God doesn't give me the answer that I want, I'm still going to trust him. Mm-hmm. Do I serve him because of who he is or do I serve him because of what I get out of it? That's something I've had to ask myself in, in, in repeated times in my life. And so I really thought that the lessons from this chapter were very well put. And so our third benchmark um, is sacrifice. And I'm going to let Naomi lead off this one with her reflections. Um, he talks about uh, people seeing a short term kind of like, oh, I've done my good deed for the day. I don't have to do anything more the rest of the day. Um, and that was a good reminder for me to um, remember to sacrifice, whether it be my time or uh, money or wh- whichever. And my dad actually recently had um, a chance to do that. He um, was working on his house. They have a limited amount of time, as you know, it's summer. And so he's trying to get as much work done as he can. And I called him and I said, I have some people that need some help. And he immediately dropped what he was doing and came and helped them. And I just saw that as, thought of that as the example of what he's talking about, about sacrificing um, you know, your time or uh, ministering to others sometimes can take, you know, you away from something else. Yeah, and the, the, the missionary story that he mentioned about the the girl that went over to, um, I think it was Zimbabwe, to minister uh, to people. I think she used some medical training. Mm-hmm. And she ended up, I think within months of going over there, there was a guerrilla attack on the village where she was stationed and she was killed. Oh, my goodness. You know, and most of us will not be called to do that kind of sacrificing in our Christian life. But it's just kind of a sobering reminder of what sacrifice really means. We, we get a little, com- little too comfortable in our Western culture, you know, kind of like the way we have fast food. You know, we... We go to fast food because we want to be able to, you know, have our food, you know, 30 seconds after we order. Right. And 
since it's usually two minutes, then we have time to get impatient. (laughs) (laughs) Either either with the people working there or with the cars in front of us because they ordered more than we did or whatever. Right. (laughs) But it really, um, it's nothing compared to the sacrifices that so many make, especially when they are on a foreign mission field. And just to think about this, that there are more martyrs, more martyrs, for the gospel of Jesus Christ today than there ever have been in the history of the world. Mm. And that's another uh, good reminder for us. All right. Well, the next one is relationships. And, of course, um, he talks about his relationship with his wife, who is an American. He's from Scotland. I don't know if if you've ever heard him preach or heard his voice, but he has this extremely um, soothing Scottish brogue. But anyway, (laughs) he talks about, first of all, how his dad got moved to London from Scotland. And he's like, I don't want to go to London. I like it in Scotland. But then he went to Scotland and because, or London. And because of his, because his parents knew that it was an uncomfortable thing for him, they sent him on a two week kind of youth outreach and he met his wife, oh wow, who was an American who happened to be from Michigan, actually, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, but anyway, then he, throughout this benchmark, this chapter, he talks about his relationship with her and how he started writing to her, and um, when she was leaving to go back to the states from London, um, he made a decision that he wanted to pursue a relationship with her at any cost. Basically he said, I'm going to continue to write to you. I want to, I want to really pursue this. And he pretty much said that even at that point he knew that he wanted to marry her. And, uh, so they continued corresponding and God eventually brought them together as husband and wife. But he talked about the importance of, prioritizing your relationships and not just walking out on them, you know, cause it's so easy for us when we have relationships, whether they be friendships or whether they be of the, the romantic kind to when we get frustrated with someone to walk away or another manifestation of it is to be in a church and someone does something that you don't like in the church and then you walk away and leave. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he's talking about, the importance of working through um, your issues and making sure that you uh, that you put the other people first, and I really appreciated that, and I really appreciated what um, Naomi said too about um, about putting you know putting your own agenda aside sometimes. In order to make things work, it kind of ties in with the the, the sacrifice thing. Um, did you have any further thoughts? Um, I love the story, if you haven't read the book, about the motorbike, the dirt bike. Partly because my husband rides dirt bikes, so I could totally imagine that whole scene. And also how he describes that um, all the Dutch guys looked like marine recruits. Because I know when my husband came over from California, that was his immediate thought, too. Um, but just how, you know, despite, um, feeling inadequate for his wife or to be, she 
still loved him. I thought that was really sweet. And I also like how he talks about becoming one. Um, you know, when two people come together, they have separate ish, uh, interests and personalities and how he over time adopted a lot of his wife's interests. And I'm sure she did his. Um, it made me also think about that God talks about when we become married that we have to be equally yoked. And I always thought about that, like, you know, that you're the same uh, religion or of the same spiritual mindset. But um, then I was reading about how they train horses to walk, to like uh, Belgians to walk together. And usually they'll put one that has a strength with one that is weak in an area. And one is always the leader. And so reading about that and then reading about how he talks about um, dying to self for the, you know, your spouse. It made me think about that, that when I'm walking along with my husband, am I encouraging him and not making it harder for us to, to walk together? I guess it was a good reminder. I really, I liked the, the, to, to finish up this benchmark, I liked the analogy to the airplane um, mm-hmm. to the marriage relationship. Of course, I haven't entered into one yet, but I thought it was very striking how he talked about how everybody um, gets excited about the takeoff. You know, the, oh, yeah. the beginning of the marriage, they get excited about the takeoff, but the real nitty-gritty is when you're in flight. You know, because, you know, if you have a, a lifelong marriage where you both live reasonably long lives, you know, your, your wedding is one day. Mm-hmm. Your honeymoon might be one week or maybe two if you have money. <laughs> <laughs> but your marriage could be upwards of 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as much what happens on that day, although it is a sacred covenant and a commitment and it's great to be a part of that. It's not as much what happens on that day as important as what happens in the 50 years after that day. Um, Sadly, I actually saw a billboard not too long ago that said, the average marriage only lasts five to seven years. Don't spend a bundle on your reception. Hmm. That was actually a catering company's billboard. Oh, wow. And I was like, I was like, that is so sad, but it's so, uh, you know, it's so telling about our culture and our our uh, lackadaisical view of the marriage institution. Mm-hmm. So, and then number five, vocation. This one I really appreciated, and I'll tell you why. Because so many times I feel like we split people up into people that have secular vocations and people that work for God. And Alistair takes a lot of time in this chapter to talk about how whatever vocation you have, whether it be a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a plumber, whether you are a, you know, I don't remember all the examples, but basically whatever profession God has gifted you at, then do it the best you can. You know, I, I... I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, whatever you find to do, do it well, Mm -hmm. or something like that, which is kind of along the lines of 
Colossians 3.17, which we referenced earlier. And Alistair was just talking about how there's a great many, probably a great many people in ministry that don't belong there. And probably a number of people that should be in ministry that are in secular vocations. Mm -hmm. So he talked about the importance of viewing every vocation as sacred if it's what God has called you to and seeking God's direction in making sure that you make the right choice that he wants you to make. But I love the fact that he doesn't elevate himself over everybody else and say, I'm the pastor, look how great I am. Right. That's one mm -hmm. of the things I really appreciate about him is this homespun humility. Mm -hmm. Did you have any further reflections? Um, he shares in the chapter about how he got the call to Cleveland. and oh, That's a really interesting story. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think it's interesting because he gets the call, but the doors kind of shut for him in the beginning. Um, but he keeps praying and he's open to the Lord's will. And then after he feels like a lot of looking back, he feels like a lot of things were kind of taken care of in Scotland um, the door opens again for him to go to Scotland or to Cleveland, and he's able. So I sometimes think that um, maybe we feel a calling to do something, but it maybe isn't just for this moment. Maybe God is just preparing our hearts. And I agree. I like that he um, encourages you with whatever gift you have to do it. It makes me think of the song, Me and My Small Corner. And, um, you know, Would you like to do a solo? No. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> I just thought you set that you up can. beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> well, that has kind of been my... There's been times where I'm like, changing diapers, me in my small corner, you know, so... Yeah. Well, you know, and the the whole... Um, the stay-at-home mom thing, you, those who listen to this podcast know that, that stay-at-home moms have a special place in my heart because I watched my mom raise 11 children and I have a great deal of admiration for them. And there was just recently a blog post that I saw that I shared on Facebook. And it talked about how a lady had three small kids on an elevator. She was pregnant with her fourth. And she was kind of ashamed of the fact that she was expecting her fourth child. Because the mindset of the modern Western culture is if you have two, two children is perfect. If you have three children, it must not be must mean that you didn't get what you wanted the first two times, and if you have four, you must be crazy, <laughs> or more. And I think it's kind of a sad commentary on the way people, even in the church, view children, because God says children are a blessing, mm -hmm. and they're actually one of the few things that you're actually going to be able to take with you to heaven um, when you die. So I think. We definitely need a cultural shift as far as the way we view children. Mm -hmm. All right. This next one is also one that I resonate with greatly, and that is the issue of suffering. Uh, did you have anything to say about that? Mm, I just wrote down that... Um Sometimes when we're suffering, we need to recognize that it can be used by the Lord to steer us in a different direction or to mold us for a bigger plan that he has. Um, I forget which missionary. I want to say Carmichael um, was bedridden the rest of her life, toward the end of her life. And she was able to write 
books during that time and realized that if she had not been bedridden, she would not have been able to write. And um, that through her suffering, the Lord was able to use her. And so. this is one of those things that I resonate with because I've, I've dealt with uh, a variety of um, physical challenges, though I would have to say that compared to some people, I am most blessed and far better off than many are. But I've had a lot of discussions with people about suffering. Um, some people are of the mindset that Christi- God wouldn't call Christians to suffer, that he doesn't want to suffer you to suffer. But uh, Peter said, you know, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which you're going through. And basically talking about how going through suffering is going to build your character. It's going to make you a better Christian. It's going to help you walk closer with the Lord. And Paul said in First Corinthians chapter thir- chapter or Second Corinthians chapter twelve, I believe, he said, "I glory in my infirmities." Mm-hmm. He doesn't say in that passage. I'm trying to get out of my infirmities because a few verses before that, he says, I asked the Lord three times to take away this suffering from me. And he said, no, this goes back to what we were talking about with prayer earlier. Mm -hmm. We often say, if we don't get what we want, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Well, actually he did, but he may have said no. And you may be upset about it, but it doesn't mean that he didn't answer. (laughs) And, um, so Paul is saying, after going through this, after finding God's grace sufficient, he's saying, I'm glorying in my infirmities. I'm thankful for my infirmities. And truth be told, it wasn't until I was able to say, thank you for my infirmity, thank you for my wheelchair, that I was able to really become the minister that God has allowed me to become. And I think that it's given me uh, platform, which I hope I'm using uh, successfully to bring others to him. My hope is that when people see me, they will see somebody that's active in the kingdom of God and they will ask themselves if he's working through these limitations and he's able to do all these things that he's doing, what does that say about what I am able to do if I have a totally healthy body? And the thing is, we all have limitations that we would rather not. If I lined up 10 different people in this room and asked them what they would change about themselves, they probably all have something. Mm -hmm. Um, My sister sometimes says she wants to be taller. (laughs) Um, Some people want to be shorter if they are extremely tall. You know, we all have things that we would rather be different. But the key is to believe And to know that God knew what he was doing and that God made you. And so he has a plan for you. And also, we don't pay attention a lot of times during the good times. That's true. You know, during the good times, we we have plenty. We can can get to the point where we almost don't need to talk to God. We would hope that we wouldn't get there. But sometimes it can almost get to that point where, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And then God has to pull us back and say, wait a second, this this is lacking in your life. 
And so he sometimes has to get out his two by four because his still small voice didn't get the message across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so suffering, I continue to maintain, is a very important part of going through the Christian life. Um, so the seventh benchmark is about the narrow way. And I think this one is prevalent today. This is, was actually written several years ago. Like I think 10 or 15 years ago this book was written. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading this chapter, I was like, it, it feels like it was written yesterday. <laughs> because this is what we are, we're dealing with this in a large scale in the church. Because we have people saying, well, maybe Jesus didn't mean all mm-hmm. the definite things that he said. You know, he didn't say anything against homosexual marriage, so we we should just um, allow people to love who they want to love. Um, and sometimes we live in the exception. We we say, well, he gave an exception for divorce, and let me just say, I'm not here to condemn everybody that's divorced. Okay, I know there are different circumstances that lead to it, and I can't begin to enter into your individual situation. But it is my firm conviction that we don't take marriage seriously enough as a general rule within the church. Mm-hmm. And so if we are going to contend for marriage and speak out against homosexual marriages... One of the biggest ways we can contend as the church for marriage is by being an example in our own marriages. By showing people the truth of the scriptures that say that marriage is a picture between Christ and his church. Does Christ ever turn away from us and leave us on our own? No. If we are his, he stays with us for life and beyond. And so our marriages need to be a picture of that. And... We've just gotten farther and farther away from the narrow way, and we we try to uh, make um, exceptions in ways that that God is not pleased with, and so that's my reflections on the narrow way benchmark. Is there anything that you wanted to add? I'll just read a part that follows up what you're saying. Uh, It says, Church leaders today tiptoe around sin, fearful of offending or troubling those who are involved. Jesus was straight and to the point, and his advice is clear to understand and crucial in its application. All right. So we don't have to look for a hidden interpretation in most of what Jesus said. Uh, Most of the time when we're looking for a different interpretation, it's because the one that we know is right is uncomfortable and um, God doesn't call us to a comfortable life. He calls us to a holy life. Mm -hmm. And then the eighth benchmark intellectualism and materialism. This was in some ways one of the more challenging um, chapters to go through. I didn't feel in some ways and I don't want this, this to sound prideful, but I didn't feel in some ways like this was extremely applicable to me. 
Although, I can definitely see how we can make the pursuit of knowledge of the greatest import. I see this um, with education. You know, we're, we're so uh, hung up on making sure our kids get good grades so they can get into a good school, so they can get a good job, all of which are not bad things. But if we're pursuing um, this these this knowledge apart from biblical character then we're we're pursuing vain things that we need to realize that true wisdom uh, is found in God because there's a lot of wise foolish people out there <laughs> there are you know PhDs with advanced doctorates who think that this world came from a speck of dirt which exploded and then allowed over millions of years this complex universe that you see before you. It's amazing to me how we can think that something this complex just happened, but we know that when we go into the parking lot and we get in our car, we know that there were many engineers and different people that worked on that car, and we have no problem believing that. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything else that you wanted to mention? Um, just that my husband had been having a conversation with somebody that when I was reading this chapter, it reminded me and he was saying that there was no way he could believe in God because there was no way to scientifically prove it. And I feel like when you go outside, it's hard to not see God's hand in creation. And, um, he does, he talks in the chapter about people, um, Grasping education, but not wisdom, and uh, rejecting God or not needing Him because they have uh, knowledge. And so, another aspect is the materialism. We kind of focused on the intellectual, mm -hmm. but just very quickly before we move on to the next benchmark, is the idea of materialism. Um, I think I, I heard of a, a, faint, a rich guy at one time. I think it was Norman Rockefeller. I'm not sure. But he somebody asked him how much money is enough. And he said just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and you see a lot of these like pro athletes or uh, movie stars. They have a ton of money. You think they're set for life. And they should be set for life. But a lot of times they end up poor and in uh, squalor because they waste their money. No matter how much money you have, you can still waste it. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here, and I think Alistair talks about this too, is that we need to make sure that we're storing up treasures in heaven mm -hmm. because treasures in heaven won't be taken away from us. They're eternal. They will stay with us. Um, yes, he says you can't take it with you. And you can't. So the thing that we need to do is to focus on the things that we can take with us, um, like other people, as we share the gospel. And um, so that's uh, what I have to say on that. And um, the ninth benchmark is uh, humility. Um, this is a, a big one for me um, because I've struggled a lot with pride. I think that's one of the reasons why God 
allowed me to be in this wheelchair so that I would have a frame of reference for the fact that I need people. I can't get out of bed in the morning without the assistance of other people. Um, I come in here and do this podcast because of the the good graces of the management here and my co-host Adam who um, stays after his work day to record and produce for me. Um, these, these are things that help me remember that it's not what I have done that matters, but what God has allowed me to do for him and what he has done through me. Um, did you have any thoughts? Um, just that there are many times in my life where, um, I would be embarrassed about something my dad would say, you do realize that that's because of pride and that if you um, will humble yourself, then a lot of things actually won't bother you (laughs) so much. And um, I think it's sad because I do see in our society that there is in the church a lack of teaching of humility, Um, you know, teaching the children and people within the church. And I think that's, what is humility? You know, a lot of people today, I think it would be hard for them to give an answer. So I like that he really gets into what it is and what it is to be humble. Yeah, and I think one of the tricky things about teaching humility is immediately upon doing so, people might have a tendency, because we are human, to think that you are anything but humble. And who are you to, to talk about it? Um, so I think that when you can back up uh, teaching humility with a life of humility, then that definitely helps. I know it's a real challenge for me knowing that I have this public platform and I'm putting out content and people are listening to it, that they are looking to see if I really live it out. And um, I just... I think that it's it is an important thing, and it was probably the most challenging um, chapter um, that I read. And one interesting thing that I wanted to bring up that he wrote in this is he talked about a college student's teacher T-shirt, and it said the following: "No, I am not conceited." And then underneath it, in smaller letters though I have every right to be so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just remember there was a character in the book David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. His name was Uriah Heep. And he was most known for, throughout the novel, talking about how humble he was. <laughs> yeah. And if you have a friend that talks about how humble they are, the, the chances are they're not. <laughs> <laughs> because most humble people that I know don't think they are. That's the interesting thing mm-hmm. about humility. Mm-hmm. If you start to think you are, then you probably aren't. And I've been there myself, so I'm preaching to myself as well as everyone else. Yeah, I think we all have. And uh, we finish up by talking about evangelism. And I wanted to say that I'm really glad that he put this last. Not necessarily that it's last in priority, But in the circles that I've been in, I think we've gone a little bit overboard on evangelism. And I know I feel bad when I say that. 
But we did a podcast where we talked about evangelism in particular mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. And the reason I say that is because God gave Christians a whole lot of stuff that he asked us to do as far as living a good life, as far as being an example to the world. And if we try to evangelize without being that example, then we're not going to be effective anyway. So I like how he talks about spiritual fitness and prayer and sacrifice and relationships and vocation and suffering in the narrow way and intellectualism and materialism and humility all before he talks about evangelism. Because guess what? If you get the other nine benchmarks right, then evangelism is going to be a natural outgrowth. It's going to be a result. Mm -hmm. Number one, because you're going to want to evangelize. And number two, you're probably going to evangelize without even realizing it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we think evangelism is something I have to go out and do. Mm -hmm. And while there is a certain element of that, there's also the element of if you're abiding in Christ and Christ is coming out of you, then you're going to talk about Christ wherever you are. It's not going to bother you that you're a Christian. So it's just going to be a natural thing for you to talk about what he's done in your life. And then people that aren't saved are going to hear it. And guess what? That's evangelism. Mm -hmm. So I think we overcomplicate things uh, at certain times, especially as far as that goes. So I like the way he wraps that up. Did you have any additional thoughts? Um, I like how he talks about that we don't need to cater when we are witnessing to others, um, no offense to anyone, but, you know, we don't have to put piercings in and tattoos to go downtown and witness. Um, but he does talk about having, like you said, humility. So you're not standing over and telling them, oh, you're so horrible and <laughs> you need the Lord. And um, and I agree, too. Like, a lot of times people think, well, I have to go to the mission field or I have to be trained. And um, my dad and my uncle... They um, have both had many opportunities to witness actually to the Amish because the Amish will actually ask them, you know, do you believe in the Lord because of the way they live and the way they speak? And that has opened many opportunities for them to witness to them. And I know one of my friends, Melissa, was saying that where she worked, she often had girls come up to her and ask her, like, wow, you handled that really well. How could you do that? And that opened a door for her. So wherever you are, um, you can be a witness and a testimony. And like you said, if you have all these other benchmarks, your life uh, will be a testimony. And I like how he he talks about um, this story. I think it's in one of the Kings where... These lepers, they find this abandoned city and they find this treasure and they're excited because they're rich. And then they realize, you know, this is good news. We shouldn't keep it to ourselves. We should share it with others. And that's really the way we need to be about our Christian faith. Mm -hmm. God has done amazing and mighty things for us. And so we should want to share it with others. And as I I often say in, in, or as I have said in the past, in sermons, if if your friend's house was on fire and you knew it and they didn't know, would you tell them? And I think today 
in our culture in which we live, there are a lot of people right now who the house of their life is on fire. And we have an opportunity to show them how to get out of the fire and into the light. And are we going to? And uh, just, I really hope that this discussion has been a blessing to you. I know uh, in some ways I felt like I was fumbling along. I actually think that uh, Naomi was better prepared than I was today, and I appreciate that. And but, uh, but that's what we're here for. We're here to make each other better and to help each other along. That's what the Christian life is about. And if you have a testimony related to reading this book, and you want to share it with us, uh, give us a voicemail on the blog or send me an email um, by my website, which is www.speakingforhim.com. For the Speaking For Him podcast, this is Andrew Gomison on behalf of Naomi Van Harn and my illustrious producer, Adam McNutt, saying, keep serving the best of masters and have a great weekend.